we started working in the biochemistry of this and we figured if we started to look at the 3D structure of BRCA1, we might know a little something better about what's going wrong in these cases with genetic mutations. And then is there something we could do about it therapeutically to improve outcomes for women with breast cancer related to BRCA1? And BRCA1 mutations aren't the majority of female breast cancers, but most of them are the most deadly. Welcome to Science with a Twist, a podcast for curious people who enjoy exploring how science impacts our daily lives. From technology that helps the fight against COVID-19 to solutions that help clean the water we drink is all thanks to science. In each episode, members of Thermo Fisher's scientifics team talk to experts who are on the cutting edge of redefining how we exist. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome back to Science with a Twist, brought to you by Thermo Fisher Scientific, the world leader in serving science. I'm Kathy Davey, and I serve as the Vice President of Oncology in the Clinical Sequencing Division at Thermo Fisher Scientific. As part of my role, I help lead a team partnering with clinicians, labs, researchers, and pharmaceutical companies to rethink how we diagnose and treat cancer, with the goal of ultimately providing better care and outcomes for patients. We deliver next-generation sequencing solutions for precision medicine, defining the molecular profile of cancer to aid in getting patients all to the right therapy. We're enabling more clinicians and patients to access an increasing number of targeted personalized therapies that promise to change the way we treat this vicious disease. On this episode of Science with a Twist, I'm honored to be joined by Professor Deb Kelly from Penn State. Her lab focuses on understanding small things in a big way, and how problems within genes can lead to disease. Using a special freezing technique known as cryo-EM, Professor Kelly's lab is pioneering a new area of research they refer to as structural oncology. In today's episode, we'll be discussing her approach to cancer research and how it's helping researchers better understand breast cancer, the value of cryo-EM, and what's next for her lab as she looks to outsmart cancer. Many of us have a personal connection to cancer. Knowing how devastating a diagnosis can be and how little it's still known about the disease. This gives Professor Kelly the seemingly tireless energy to continue her research. Welcome to Science with a Twist, Professor Kelly, and thank you for joining us. Thank start, you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. To start, I'd love to know more about the work your lab is focused on. You describe it as researching small things in a big way. I love that. Can you tell me more about that and how you're specifically advancing breast cancer research? Yeah, thank you so much, Kathy. It's a pleasure to be here today, and it's always a pleasure to connect with my Thermo Fisher scientific friends. Our lab uses this very high-tech imaging approach. It's called cryo-electron microscopy, or cryo-EM, for which pioneers in our field actually won the Nobel Prize just a few years ago. And what we like to do is dive deep into cancer cells, understand what molecules look like using these instruments, take pictures and snapshots of them, sort of what you would do with your iPhone, but in portrait mode. So we can really focus very deeply on the nuances of these molecules. And then we use these molecules to try and better understand what goes wrong in cancer, how these molecules are contributing to cancer, and what we might do to better inform treatments based on differences in molecules from cancer cells versus normal cells. And so these instruments help us take these very deep views and snapshots of these protein culprits that are at the root of cancer. You know, genes code for proteins 
And so we look at the readout of the gene products, which are proteins. And so we use microscopes to do that in our work. And we're really inspired to do that. We have a, a nice mix of international students as well as female PhD students and staff on my team. I think it's really great for females to dive into these specific problems such as breast cancer to really try and have an impact in women's health. So that's what we're doing in terms of an overview. In my lab, we're using these powerful tools to look at molecules differently, and we want to be as diverse and inclusive in science as we do that. Thanks for providing that overview. In my own life, both personally and professionally, I've found immense meaning in being able to work with scientists and clinicians driving innovations in oncology. As you know, there are seemingly endless solutions, approaches, and questions that remain to be answered. Your lab takes a specialized approach to this research using a technique that you've just described, cryo-EM. Can you tell us more about this technology and how it supports your research? Yeah, of course. So cryo-electron microscopy allows us to image things at the level of atoms. So as you know, as women, we would go in for our yearly mammogram and you're imaging at the level of tissues and almost at the level of cells. Well, if you go down to a slightly higher level of being able to see details, you would image at the level of whole cells or how whole cells build tissues. So what cryo-EM does is it allows us to see all the molecules that constitute cells, their different placements within cells, as well as their overall architecture down at the level of atoms. So going even deeper beyond just the level of cells, we can get down and understand the level of which proteins are interacting with DNA, how these proteins don't interact with DNA properly to protect cells from diseases, or how things might work against us when cells become cancerous and how molecules go awry and don't perform their job properly. And electron microscopes are really beautiful instruments that allow us to visualize from the cellular all the way down to the atomic detail. And that's how we're using cryo-EM with this term we call structural oncology. Now you might wonder what is structural oncology? We want to understand at the exquisite level of molecules and atoms, how are these structures arranged in cancer cells? How do they actually give rise to disease? And are there different pockets and targets that we could actually see that are different when cancer arises than when cells perform their normal function? So if we can measure all the way down and see all the way down to those molecules and atoms, we could see new opportunities for, hey, drugs could actually fix this protein or drugs might actually work differently in these proteins that cause cancer. So structural oncology in the overview of cryo-EM is allowing us to look all the way down at the structural details of atoms or large domains of proteins that give rise to cancer. Hence, we have the word structure and we have the word oncology. It's kind of like reframing what we think about in structural biology, which is a term that's commonly used in the cryo-EM field where we look at the structures that inform biological processes. We want to look at the structures that informed cancer-causing processes or things that are implicated in metastasis. Wow, that's really interesting. How is this different from other forms of research in oncology? And what does it tell us specifically about cancer? So as you know, BRCA1, for instance, is a protein that we work on. We also work on a protein called P53. And these different proteins, they're designed to actually protect your body and prevent cancer. They're actually termed tumor suppressors. And I, I know with your background in genomics, you're probably looking at genetic mutations and how these genetic mutations are common across different patients. And if there's a mutation in the BRCA1 gene, then that might predict a particular outcome for a patient. Or if there's a mutation in 
a KRAS gene and a P53 gene and might predict a certain outcome for a patient. So whereas physicians and oncologists can actually do genetic screening nowadays and understand propensities of if someone's going to get breast cancer or cancer is going to arise or not, we can look at the level of the protein product for that gene and better inform, okay, even if this mutation is present, it doesn't look like the structure is really the main problem in how this cancer is going to unfold. People with certain mutations in BRCA1 may or may not get cancer, depending on the severity of the gene, depending on the severity of the mutation in the gene, depending on its protein outcome, how that mutation is going to affect how the protein looks. So we can say the protein looks like this. Based on the way it's looking, its structure, it's going to have a normal function, or you're going to have problems later with this type of mutation. So it can actually better inform where we see proteins actually performing their jobs and make better predictions for long-term outcomes. So it gets us down to that molecular level of being able to do better predictive measures for personalized medicine. So we're able to do this to some extent with BRCA1, and we've recently started doing this with P53 by looking how the structures can likely better inform how the protein's going to look and operate in cells, and then that can better inform us as to propensities toward cancer. It'd be really great if we could look at these structures and be able to stratify disease to help better predict disease outcomes. And if we can add that extra layer of information, I think anything we can give physicians and oncologists better tools to have these predictions and better inform treatment management plans, we want to be able to contribute at that level. So we're down at the molecular, tending toward the atomic scale of things to make the big picture of how we might be able to have better predictive measures in cancer. Fantastic. I think the field continues to need new ways for us to stratify patients and identify those that are going to respond in different ways. So terrific. I'm glad to hear about what you are working on. So what's next for your research? Now you've built on this foundation of structural oncology. Where are you guys taking this? So we really love diving down and being able to see proteins in their full atomic glory. How are atoms placed? How do they move when something happens? Where do things go wrong? And can we see where those places are that things go wrong inside molecules? Being able to nail down at the higher resolution level, almost to the matter of atomic placement is great because you want to see where a drug is binding to a protein. You need this high level of detail to do so. So in addition to being able to see this high level of detail, the way proteins might interact with drugs, we want to understand how are they actually operating in a more dynamic sense. We're not all rigid. We're not all fixed. As you and I were speaking before this, we sequestered our dogs because our dogs don't just sit there quietly for us. They run around and they do things. Understanding the dynamic nature of how these proteins run around and do things in our bodies, much like we want our our dog to sit still, we also want the proteins to be in the body and and do their proper job. So understanding how things operate properly, not just how they look structurally, is equally important to jointly investigate. One way in which we're doing that, now cryoline gives us lots of different snapshots of a protein and how it might exist in its natural form. To really understand how proteins exist in a natural form, they need to be in a liquid media at body temperature, right? So we're designing new ways in which we can use this new technique called liquid electron microscopy as a complement to cryo-EM. So this liquid electron microscopy allows us to take these molecules that we're setting the structures of and look at them dynamically as they would be in full liquid form. But we can also heat these up to body temperature inside the electron microscope. 
So we can do cryo-EM to understand high-resolution detail, and we could do a liquid electron microscopy to pair dynamic information with that. So then we can understand not just how something looks, but how it moves and might operate when it's at body temperature. Are those drugs binding properly at body temperature rather than just if they're frozen in time and in space? So something really exciting we're doing is this dynamic type of imaging using liquid electron microscopy and body temperature imaging directly inside the electron microscope. And I think that paired with what we're doing with cryom is really the future of where we see structural oncology growing and really how we see the future of structural biology growing to see molecules live in time and in space. People have fought for centuries to try and do this. People have really tried to do this to understand how molecules govern life processes. And we're getting to the point where we can actually make these sort of uh, ambitions come true now in the field. Can you tell us more about how you began this work and maybe a personal story about your inspiration in this space? Sure, I'm happy to speak about that. So I've been a professor at Penn State almost four years now, but before that I was a professor at Virginia Tech. And I, I came to Penn State because they had the types of microscopes and the, the tools and instruments already built that I was interested in using to advance the next phase of our research. But while I was interviewing for my first job at Virginia Tech, I'm originally from Virginia Beach, Virginia, that sort of area, the Norfolk area. My grandmother, who was a breast cancer survivor, actually passed away when I was doing my first faculty job interview at Virginia Tech, which isn't so far from where I grew up. And it, it was really unfortunate, but it made me realize, okay, maybe it's good to come start my career at Virginia Tech, start my lab there, and sort of be close to home to, you know, for support for my parents and having lost my grandmother. And although my grandmother didn't really have BRCA mutations or mutations that are highly susceptible to breast cancer, it made me curious about the disease. It made me curious about why women are still having breast cancer these days if we put so much money into research in, in the cancer area. And we've made vast advances and we are saving so many more lives today than we were 50 years ago, or even like 30 years ago when my grandmother got her breast cancer diagnosis. But there's still a lot of work to be done. And I was inspired to try and dig into some of these molecules that are doing that. And we were working in the lab, we got set up and going. And within a couple of years, we were working on different types of machines inside cells that control different ways in which genes are turned on and turned off. And we started in our sort of biochemistry experiments, we discovered that BRCA1 was playing a role. And I got really curious about BRCA1. I had heard about this celebrities having these mutations and then taking surgeries to remove like tissue in their breast or whatever. And it can be a preventive role to just dissect women's bodies, if you will, as a preventative measure for cancer. And I figured, that, oh, there's got to be a better way. Why are these women having to really change the overall structure of their bodies just to be able to have a chance to see their children graduate from high school? You know, there's got to be a better way. You know, what's going on with this gene? The gene codes for a protein, what's going on at the level of the protein that we're not catching? And I started looking through this database of all these women, 30,000 diagnoses with these BRCA1 mutations and genes. And we could start to figure out, you know, what this mutation is doing and how these genetics are coming into play, but we didn't know what to do about it. We still don't know what to do about BRCA1 mutations. So we started working in, in the biochemistry of this and we figured if we started to look at the 3D structure of BRCA1, we might know a little something better about what's going wrong in these cases with genetic mutations. And then is there something we could do about it therapeutically to improve outcomes for women with breast cancer related to BRCA1? And BRCA1 mutations aren't the majority of female breast cancers, but most of them are the most deadly. 
they're the ones that lead to metastasis. They're the most life-taking of very young women. And it's affecting a lot of underrepresented women in society. And we thought there's something we could probably do about this because we had the biochemistry already going in the lab. So I got very curious about the BRCA1 protein and I'm a structural biologist. So we started working on the structure of BRCA1. We were lucky in that over a few years, we were able to get the first three-dimensional structure of BRCA1. There weren't a lot of high-resolution tools implemented in the field at that time. Everything was still kind of low resolution. I was still working to see where all the atoms and placements are in BRCA1 still today. Uh, but it got us started in the BRCA1 area with BRCA1-based structural biology, if you will. So we went into the 3D structure of BRCA1. Are there things we're missing that we're not really seeing that we could otherwise capitalize on? And it turns out there were some things that were missing. BRCA1 was being signaled inappropriately due to changes in its architecture. So we were able to go in and affect the way BRCA1 was being signaled inappropriately and almost restore it back to its normal function. So if we're able to do that at the cellular level, we might be able to have a chance to understand how that translates at the level of tissues or at the level of whole people eventually. So by looking at these structures of these proteins with natural curiosity and being inspired by this personal message of my grandmother having been a breast cancer survivor, it really jumpstarted my interest in breast cancer. And that became a major focus of my lab and still is today. Fantastic. How inspiring. How many years away are we from the merging of tumor profiling on a molecular level to structural oncology and those two results combining to clinical utility? Yeah, I, I think it's still a work in progress. I also play the role of a, a co-leader of our Next Generation Therapies program at the Penn State Cancer Institute. We're interested in translational approaches, and that really speaks to the area that you're asking about here. How can we translate these molecular atomic findings all the way to the level of molecular outcomes for developing diseases. I think the level of resolution that we can get out of our information now using these high-powered microscopes is there. We just need to keep at it to understand once we know what the wild type or the basic molecule looks like, how do mutations affect the structure of that, and then how do we have drug treatments in place to actually operationalize that into patients. So I'd say within the next decade or so, we're going to see a huge impact of structural oncology as well as other approaches using cryo-EM to really affect the cancer field and the positive push it needs in the right direction. On that same note, we recently published the first 3D structure of another oncoprotein, P53, using cryo-EM. And P53, that's been discovered and known about the Lincoln Cancer for like 50 years, but we're just now getting to the level with technology that we can understand what that looks like in 3D. And now we can really look at those drug interfaces very precisely to do better drug targeting on both P53 or BRCA1, as well as give that information to other researchers to do those molecular items that go into preclinical trials, eventually in the clinical trials. So I'd say within the next decade or so, we're going to see a lot of really fantastic things coming out of the field. Excellent. It's going to be a great thing for patients. I look forward oh, to I, I really hope so. So what makes Penn State unique in cryo-EM? So the cryo-electron microscopes that are installed and operational at Penn State are uniquely built to service the life science community as well as the material science community. And some of these instruments have different analytical tools and cameras integrated in them that you wouldn't find in any other cryo-EM instrument. So we're looking to screen and look at proteins differently. We also have the analytical capability of going back and saying, these different types of atoms are also present in addition to what you would usually expect to find in the protein. You have 
different types of heavy metals present. We have analytical capabilities to see where proteins are binding to heavy metals improperly or other such atoms that you wouldn't otherwise be able to detect with the analytical tools that are present. Case in point, we recently looked at SARS-CoV-2 particles inside our electron microscope in a very safe way that were isolated from COVID patients. And what we found was they were completely coated with calcium. They had sucked calcium out of the serum of the patients. And why would they be coated with calcium? And then you, you go online, you can read how patients that have long COVID are experiencing deficiencies uh, related to calcium depletion. And we're like, oh, that's a really interesting analytical tool. An insight that we recently discovered just by having the analytical capabilities on our microscopes that aren't available on other sorts of cryo-EM. So we have lots of convergence between life sciences as well as material science. And, you know, it really takes a team when you're trying to fight cancer or you're trying to fight COVID or any other human pathogen. So by converging between life sciences and material science, our instruments are uniquely outfit such that we can get better performance and in a very unique fashion. And we have several different instruments set up like that for high resolution. We have, I think, four different Tallow series electron microscopes. EM geeks in the field will know what a Tallow series microscope is. And we have two different Titan series electron microscopes on our University Park campus. We also have another Titan Creos at our medical school for more medical applications in, in Hershey, PA as well. Uh -huh. Sounds like you have quite the establishment. That's excellent. Yeah. Thank you again, Professor Kelly, for joining us today and for the important work your lab is doing to advance our understanding of breast cancer. Thanks, Kathy. It's a real pleasure to be here and always nice to connect with you and my colleagues at Thermo Fisher Scientific. I'll have to come out to your lab and visit you. It sounds exciting. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. Yeah, I welcome it. Yeah. As part of our podcast mini-series on oncology, tune in next time to learn more about how genetics can play a role in determining the best cancer treatment and how we can increase equitable access to this testing. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Science with a Twist. This show is brought to you by Thermo Fisher Scientific, the world leader in serving science. If you enjoyed this episode, then follow Science with a Twist wherever you get your favorite podcasts.